Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm here with a new friend. This is, in fact, only our third meeting because we had one this morning, That's briefly, right. in the street. Shamir Hamairi, and how am I doing with that? Oh, Shaha Hamiri, yeah, you're pretty close. Shaha Hamiri. Yeah, 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 you're close enough. You know, you're in the ballpark. I'm in the ballpark. <laughs> and thank you for, for giving me some coaching. Shaha, it's really great that you're here. <laughs> and you. tell me what's, what's the word, you know, rocking your world at the moment. What's interesting you? Mm. What did you read this morning that caught your attention? Or did, what dreams did you have last night? Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, actually, at the moment, I'm dealing largely with real estate, so my dreams are dark and, and, and quite uh, quite difficult. How uh, demoralizing. So you're moving, right? Yeah, we are relocating as a family to uh, the University of Queensland, and uh, unfortunately, that takes up a lot of my time at the moment, just uh, very uh, boring logistical, logistical uh, things. issues. Yeah. That's on the other side of the country. We're in Australia at the moment. Uh, Shahar is a professor here at Murdoch University in Perth, uh, and he's moving over to the University of Queensland, which is in Brisbane. So yes, logistical things. Um, yeah, unfortunately, not to be not to be downplayed in their significance. <laughs> Logistics today, one of the biggest industries in the world. That, that's actually. absolutely right. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, um, if we sort of put that to the side for now, yeah. uh, I just got back from a uh, workshop in Canberra, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, with uh, quite a lot of other colleagues from other Australian universities, we're working on the uh, forthcoming edition of Australian World Affairs, which is a um, a series that, if I'm not mistaken, has been running one way or another since 1950. Um, it is considered to be the uh, flagship publication of the Australian Institute of International Affairs mm. and attempts to capture the zeitgeist, if you like, mm. uh, of what's happened in relation to Australia and international politics, Australian foreign mm. policy in a five-year mm. period. Oh, great. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> presumably you're writing a chapter in this? We are, we are writing the introduction. Um, this is a little bit different to what I normally do, uh, if, if, I, if I may say. I mean, I have written about issues uh, that are relevant to Australian foreign policy, but this is a slightly more, if you like... Uh, uh, um, a mainstream publication that uh, needs to uh, um, have a, a, a capture a broad range of, of, of views on this topic um, that uh, brings in um, some you know very well known scholars that have been around for a long time yeah. like Professor Ramesh Thakur they've been writing about this stuff uh, but also some uh, young and, and, and up and coming scholars so in, that, in that area. In a sense, it's a chronicle, it, it's, uh, yes. rather than tendentious. Is that the idea? Well, the idea is is both to analyse, but also just to describe what's happening yeah. in a five-year period. So yeah. it, it needs to have both. Interesting. Um, and what are the major things in Australian foreign policy for the last oh, five years? As, as the workshop has, uh, has shown, uh, not everyone agrees exactly on what they were. <laughs> I, think, I think that most people agree that it's been a very tumultuous period, especially uh, in, in, well, actually in both in domestic politics and in international politics. Um, and there is a sense that a lot of the established uh, structures that uh, we have taken for granted in this mm-hmm. country for a very long time may be uh, starting to unravel, or, or at least not unravel, but shift somewhat. Um, and, and some people were arguing quite strongly that um, in historical perspective, the period over the last five years will, will come to be seen as a period of, of more significant change, perhaps. Hmm. And is that about what in the United States they call a pivot? Yes, I mean, that, that certainly is a part of it. Um, some people that uh, um, are interested in um, 
especially the strategic picture uh, mm. in, in, in East Asia, uh, which is not really what my work has been about, but uh, you know, I have uh, some interest in this, um, have been arguing that what we've seen over the, uh, the last few years is perhaps uh, the first manifestations of, uh, of, of, of a security, strategic security environment in which the United States does not have the capacity to act out um, mm. on, on every uh, idea, every initiative that it has. Mm -hmm. that it, it's, uh, it's becoming a little bit more restrained by uh, uh, especially Chinese, uh, rising Chinese military power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was one of the issues that was mentioned. But for me, um, my interest in this project is actually, um, which is related to my broader uh, research interest, is actually in understanding new forms of governance, both in relation to foreign policy, but also just the, the broad sort of blurring of the international and the domestic when it comes to issues that are typically understood as foreign policy. And mm -hmm. we've certainly seen that uh, uh, changing quite a bit in Australia over the last, uh, not just the last five years, but certainly the last 15, 20 years. Oh, Shahar, could you tell us a bit about that? And then afterwards, maybe we could move to Asia, which I guess is more, is your beat to a certain extent. Yeah, to some extent, yes. I mean, uh, I've also looked at the South Pacific and, and uh, I do try to, uh, I would not describe myself as an Asianist so much as uh -huh. someone that uh, that uh, works, uh, asks broader questions, but applies them largely in the Asian region, just because um, uh, this is... Uh, where we're based and it has the probably most significance for, for us here in Australia. But also because I think most people would argue this is uh, where a lot of big changes are happening at the moment for quite some time actually. So let's talk about governance in general, the governance yeah. changes in Australia and then these other questions. Yeah, so um, this is not necessarily, uh, I'm not necessarily the first person to point this out, but um, I think that uh, in recent years, uh, recent meaning certainly over the last two or three decades, um, some uh, established ideas about international politics and domestic politics, the, um, the, the separation of those into uh, uh, distinct realms of policy, of politics, of struggle, is becoming uh, a little bit difficult um, and, and a little bit, um, unfortunately, uh, removed from reality. Now, as someone like John Agnew has, has argued for mm -hmm. some time, um, this idea of, um, of, of states as uh, power containers as, as basically just containing all politics within them mm. has always been a myth. So everyone understands that. But I think it's increasingly more of a myth than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Certainly in the sort of uh, high point, if you like, of, uh, of, 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 the of the nation, of the nation state, which came in the early decades of the Second World War, it was less of a myth then than it is now. And there's quite a lot of reasons for that. But uh, I think that um, what we're seeing is uh, through processes both of uh, economic globalization, but mm -hmm. also for me it's been very interesting to look at the effect of so-called non-traditional security issues, transnational security issues of various kinds, um, are both uh, coming from uh, states that are increasingly more disaggregated um, and that um, operate uh, transnationally and link up transnationally in new ways, but also continue to uh, promote this change in statehood um, and, and drive it further. Mm -hmm. um, and, and none of this is to say that the state is disappearing, it's withering away or anything like that, mm -hmm. but it is changing. This is why I've, I've been uh, working uh, quite a bit with this concept of straight transformation as, as I think one, one of the key ways in which we can understand the change in the world today. Mm -hmm. And presumably some of this goes with the different relationship between security issues and trade issues, that these things are so much clo more closely bound than they were mm -hmm. historically. 
I think it's fair to say, in the mm. post-Cold War era, that's just inevitable, quite apart from other economic transformations, that places like Australia bound together foreign affairs and trade, which had been fairly distinct for a very long time, and lots of other places do too, right? These things are much more tightly con connected. We've just seen pathetic grovelling uh, by the British to the Chinese in the last 72 hours, grovelling <laughs> that will continue into the time immemorial, perhaps, uh, that is very much about binding together security and trade in a new way. It is an interesting point. Uh, in Australia there is a, a debate about the extent to which um, the parties, uh, the main political parties are actually uh, aligned on this. There is a, a view out there that especially the coalition, the Liberal uh, uh, National Coalition, which is currently in government in Australia, <clears throat> tends to uh, to, to link trade and 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 uh, and, um, and sort of strategic uh, agendas uh, a lot more than, for example, uh, the Labour Party did, especially when it was last in government. Oh, uh -huh. um, so uh, one of the contributors to to this uh, uh, forthcoming edited book that I mentioned, uh, uh, Dr. Liz Thurman from the University of New South Wales, which wrote the chapter on trade and industry policy, actually showed that. Um, the the Liberal National Coalition has pursued um, free trade or not free trade. It's 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 a misnomer. A preferential trade agreements mm -hmm. uh, with uh, the United States and also more recently with East Asian countries, uh, which have um, very limited uh, economic rationale from the point of view of. Uh, your classical economics anyway, yeah, but trade yeah. economics. Uh, yeah. it, it really makes very little uh, sense. Uh, they're very considered to be very weak trade agreements that are definitely going to lead to uh, relatively minor um, uh, uh, benefits for Australian uh, business or for the Australian economy in an aggregate sense. And they pursued those, whereas the, uh, the Labour government, when it was in government, decided to not go ahead with those agreements, even though they did have some strategic rationale, because uh, from their point of view, which is quite a legitimate one, they did not make economic sense. So the extent to which the two are integrated, uh, it does vary. Varies um, a lot. Yeah. I, I, I would not go as far as saying that uh, you know Labor could not ever uh, sign a free trade agreement that uh, was uh, a bit more strategic in that sense. Um, and I think it, it's important to, to, to mention here that uh, most of, of the countries, uh, the governments that we, we're dealing with here, especially the Chinese and Japanese and you know, a lot of East Asian governments are. They don't, they don't necessarily see trade policy in the same way that uh, that Australia does. Australia is, um, you know, I'm, again, this is not my observation necessarily, but uh, it's the true believer. It's it's the country of the true neoliberal believers. Uh, there's very few like that out there, actually. Um, across both bureaucracy and politics, the, the, those principles are very rarely challenged. Mm -hmm. And getting on to governance, and you're saying that we're not in any sense in a post-state era or a withered or withering state era, but we are seeing transformation and uh, an appreciation of the fact that much of the discourse around the state was mythological. What are the key sites of power now in governance? Um, they, they do vary, I think, uh, is the simple answer. But um, to, to be a bit more specific, the broad trend that we're seeing is for a shift away from uh, power exercised by majoritarian institutions within the state, uh, like uh, parliaments or parts of the, the, the state that are um, politically or popularly uh, accountable uh, towards parts of the state that uh, 
you know, exercise various forms of executive power, uh, mm -hmm. in, in some cases with very little accountability to both Parliament and, and the population at large. Um, so the kind of trends that, again, have been highlighted by several scholars is the shift to independent central banks, but we've seen similar um, kind of transformation occurring in other areas of, of regulation to do with a whole range of different issues um, that are probably too numerous to, to mention here. But um, in, in Australia, uh, for example, uh, what we've seen is, um, um, and, and I've, I've written about this in the past, is agencies like the Australian Federal Police, which was established just as a police force in a kind of Westminster tradition, that is now acting uh, transnationally a lot more than it used to. It, uh, it intervenes in, in countries in the region. It uh, establishes direct relationship with police forces in, in especially the Southwest Pacific, also in places like Timor. This is not what the Australian Federal Police was established for, and the regulatory frameworks that are there in place um, to regulate what the Australian Federal Police does are not necessarily suitable for this new role that it's uh, come to acquire in, in, in the last decade. Nonetheless, it does it, and that's just one example. Um, so we're sort of in a situation where, to the extent that it will have ever happen, mm -hmm. the regulatory and, and, uh, and uh, democratic uh, institutions that we have are not really up to date with those kinds of developments that we're seeing. So in other words, this isn't the state losing power. This is the state diversifying away from a model of accountability and towards a model of technocracy. That is the idea, but I think it's it's really important to uh, to argue and and to show that uh, this shift is really uneven, uh, and and its uh, its its outcomes depend on concrete conflicts in in specific contexts. Mm. Um, in in my most recent co-authored co book with uh, Dr. Lee Jones from Queen Mary uh, University of London. We looked Tim, at, I met uh, in the same pub where oh, you I met you. Yes, that's right. Yeah, Actually, you shouldn't call it a pub. It's it's interesting place, isn't it? Because it's a mixture of yuppie slash hipster men with beards. Not your sort of beard, but a hipster beard, right? Like yeah, white guy yeah, yeah. with long beard and whatnot. And right? I've got no tattoos as and well. No tattoos and, and not the, the shoe wears, the footwear's all wrong. Yeah. But also working class guys, you know, mm. Kevin Hewison's brothers and sisters, right? Are Absolutely. There? Look, I mean, uh, Fremantle has uh, definitely <laughs> undergone considerable tra transition where some people like that are still hanging around, but I think they're increasingly in the minority. Oh, no, but, but, uh, but as... Uh, hit as uh, you know, organic intellectuals of international working class, we feel their pain and we identify with them fully. Oh, look, absolutely. Uh, this is why we have to drown our sorrows by, by drinking in those places, you know, just to remind ourselves of what's happened. In any event, <laughs> much, much more important than this, we have to return to the, the title and the details of your book with Owen Jones that you were just mentioning yeah, before so, I rudely uh, interrupted with my organic intellectuals outburst. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that unfortunately, uh, although we'd like to think, uh, or perhaps we'd like to think of ourselves that way, I don't think that uh, we could be characterized as organic intellectuals, unfortunately, in this way. But um, the book that I've co-authored with uh, Lee Jones uh, is, is, is a work on how non-traditional transnational security issues are governed in the Asia-Pacific, with focus mostly on Southeast Asia. And I guess where it comes into the kind of debate we were just discussing is that... Um, Generally speaking, um, the, the understanding of how these issues are managed tends to focus on, on whether they're securitized, characterized security issues by governments and, and important institutions. But the assumption is that it just adds a kind of laundry list of security issues that states have to deal with. So there's nothing distinctively uh, different between Soviet Union threat in the Cold War and HIV AIDS now or something like that. That, that would be a, quite a, a typical way of, of looking at these things. But what we've uh, seen is that actually some of the most significant struggles 
actually happen about uh, how these issues are actually governed, who manages these issues, through what governance instruments, at what scale. Um, and that, that is essentially what the book is about. So when you look at mm -hmm. transnational security issues, a lot of these issues are understood to be beyond the capacity of individual governments to resolve. Think climate change, for example. The argument often made is, it doesn't matter really what one country does, everyone has to do it. Uh, and, and the same argument is said across all of those definitions. Mm. So they're actually quite different from more traditional security issues that are about military struggles between military warfare between countries, because it's not really uh, entirely established who's going to manage them and how. Uh, whereas military security issues, it's pretty clear. You have a government, it has a military force, they have a diplomatic corps, they go and talk to each other. If they can't resolve it, you know, close with sort of uh, argument is, uh, you know, they move to, to fight, you know, in theory at least. When it comes to non-traditional security issues of the kind that I was describing, it's not entirely certain. I mean, is the issue of pollution emanating from forest burning in Indonesia, is that uh, strictly uh, a local matter for the province in Indonesia or the district where the fires are coming from? Uh, is it something that should be resolved by the Indonesian state? Is it a regional matter? Is it a global matter? Because we now know that the emissions produced by these fires, apart from the immediate health hazard, are actually uh, quite a significant contributor to, uh, mm. to climate change. Mm. So what the book looks at is exactly these struggles. And often uh, we've seen that uh, these uh, conflicts over the governance of non-traditional security involve attempts to transform these states by international actors, come in and from the inside strengthen the capacity of different uh, regulatory uh, agencies or um, various governance actors at various scales to be able to, if you like, impose international disciplines on these countries and other parts of the bureaucracy, other parts of, of society at large, and uh, bring about the kind of changes and the kind of outcomes that are necessary to deal with these issues. Mm. Certainly the case of the, of the fires that I mentioned, the so-called haze in Southeast Asia, you can see a whole range of different interventions coming from international organizations, uh, even ASEAN in some ways, uh, the Singaporean government, the Malaysian government, other governments trying to come into Indonesia and occasionally form, uh, actually more than occasionally, quite often try to form close relations with the, even the, the local government, the district governments, and get them to manage the fire on their behalf, on behalf of, of, of the people standing outside of Indonesia. Mm. But how these things actually play out um, in reality is shaped by social and political conflict in those contexts. So you can never get around that. The idea is to create a technocratic uh, if you like, kernel within the state mm. and, and make that work as intended, but it never works out like that. And the outcomes are always shaped by, by very, very serious conflicts. Uh, so all of our case studies demonstrate that um, the uh, highly uneven outcomes of international attempts to manage these very important issues, these mm. very serious problems, mm. are actually ultimately shaped by uh, local social and political conflict mm. in which these international actors become essentially players. Mm. Now, if I go back 30 years mm -hmm. to arguments that the state was losing its prominence in international politics, or at least its determining qualities, and that the realist arguments of Hans Morgenthau and others were allegedly in ruins, namely that whatever was the militarily and economically most powerful state in a given interaction about almost anything would be the dominant factor in how a particular outcome was arrived at. The things that people spoke about were 
things like the transnational spread of ideology, mm -hmm. particularly Marxism, Leninism and Maoism in those days, but people also spoke about religion in, in similar ways, although they often thought they were in a post-secular world, more fools they, mm. I was one of them, and, mm -hmm. or at least something going to a post-secular, uh, sorry, a, a secular world, but of course we were yeah. going to a post-secular world, we were going, it's the reversal of Weber, we've seen the re-enchantment of the world, not the disenchantment of the world. But the other thing they thought was, along with, to a certain extent, religion, to, uh, to a certain extent, the decline of superpower authority, was the power of the multinational corporation, mm. which was seen as eroding the capacity of states to serve the interests of their citizens. What about that today? Oh, it's, a, it's a very uh, interesting question. Um, I think that uh, some of the uh, sort of hyper-globalist uh, views that are around, especially in the 90s, have, have been shown to be uh, largely inaccurate uh, mm -hmm. with the benefit of hindsight. Clearly, um, transnational corporations play a very important role, increasingly directly in governance, for example, around mining in Africa and, and so on. But in, 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 in almost every case one can think mm -hmm. of, uh, this is through some kind of a, a relationship with the state involved. So even when they're given direct governance roles, they very, very rarely, the cases where it's happening, uh, you know, voluntarily, if you like, without getting some consent from, mm -hmm. from government in the places where, uh, where they're operating, are few and far between. Um, so that is precisely why I think arguments about the state, the transformation of the state make better sense than more zero-sum understanding of what is going mm -hmm. on in world politics. For example, like the one that Susan Strange and others were putting out, uh, mm -hmm. especially in the 90s, um, that what we're seeing is the state, uh, state's authority being eroded, replaced by something else. Clearly, you know, the authority of the state, the power of the state is dispersing, but it's also dispersing within the state itself. Mm -hmm. um, so it's far less uh, uh, concentrated in a kind of Iberian sense through some kind of hierarchical structures that, uh, um, you know, operate in this traditional sense of uh, how we, we thought the state operates. But all that that means is that um, increasingly there's a lot more social and political conflict operating within the state, between different parts of the state. Constructing coherent national positions on a lot of things is becoming harder, but it doesn't mean that what we're seeing is the withering away of the state. Right. We are seeing a process of change that plays out in, in, in various ways, including through struggles within the state. But it's in part a disaggregation and a redistribution of mm. power rather than mm. a centralization, and ironically that also leads to a lack of regulatory oversight from below, mm. i.e. the citizenry, yeah. via their politicians. Yeah, yes? because um, the system that we have in which to uh, express our views in a kind of ordered, uh, orderly sense, if you like, uh, through elections and, and all those kinds of things, mm. are related to the institutions of representative politics, which, uh, you know, of course, were never ideal, but uh, had far stronger, I think, organic basis mm. in society than they've mm. got now. And this is part of the problem. Um, pretty much any serious study of why people are disaffected from politics, and then there's been quite a few in recent years, actually point out that uh, one of the main uh, dimensions of this is actually the disconnection that, that people feel from the political process, the, tr the kind of mm. traditional political process, and their own aspiration and their lived experience. But in part, that disconnect is actually uh, a not entirely surprising outcome of the kind of changes that we've seen, uh, both economic changes and, and, and also the, through that, you know, the broader changes in governance and the state mm. itself. Um, 
So even when you have parliamentarians that want to do a great job and, and want to act on behalf of, uh, of, of their constituents, sometimes they really struggle to do that. Um, they just don't have the power to do it because it's been dispersed. Um, again, qualifying that by saying that it, it's, it has been an uneven process. It, it's, sure, it's but it's clear that a lot yeah. of this yeah. was predicated in the post-war period to which you refer, you know, the, the 30 great years, as the French and the Italians called them, mm. on the Keynesian capacity, more or less, to manipulate supply and demand to mm. keep a kind of equilibrium. The golden and age, as they call it. Yes, yeah. exactly, yeah. The, 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 the 30 ans. Mm. Uh, I wonder, though, about the informal sector in all of this. Mm. The informal sector understood not only economically but also in security or military terms mm -hmm. because, you know, I do a lot of work in Colombia where the informal sector is monumental. Obviously, historically, a lot of that's been the mm. drug trade, but yeah. it's also the informal sector on the street corner. And you see that yeah. really in most of Latin America, for example, where this is a you know, countries that are constantly being lectured by the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and the United States about the need to be entrepreneurial, where every fucking person's entrepreneurial yeah. in the informal sector. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I mean, I've never seen such entrepreneurial people. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like telling the Palestinians to be entrepreneurial. <laughs> you know, come on. <laughs> right? That is what ordinary people do who yeah. don't have the state working for them. They're entrepreneurial, right? Yeah. So the informal sector at that level, not just the illegal bit, but the bit that, you know, isn't paying taxes for whatever reason and isn't part of a system that generates regular revenue for schools, health and so on. Vast millions of people around the world in the informal sector. But also in security terms, mm -hmm. the informal sector, if we can call it that. Vigilantes, um, militias. Yeah. Vigilantes, militias and those that are parastatal, that might, mm. that might have connections to the state that no one will acknowledge, mm -hmm. that might have connections to a state in another country that no one will acknowledge, that might want to become a state. Mm -hmm. It seems to me there are also important factors in this. Yeah, look, uh, I think that there's a few things you can say about it. And firstly, um, I think that it's still the case that even though a lot of these organizations and groups exist, um, let's talk about the security side of things for a yeah, second. Yeah. Um, there are great benefits to having state power in, in an official way because um, if you are the sovereign, if you are actually the official ruler of a country, the one that tends to, that gets to go to the UN and, and all that kind of stuff, you can get foreign aid, uh, you can get weapons from other countries. Obviously, you can get weapons even if you're not, if you're a warlord or something like that, but it's a lot harder, right? Um, and, unless and you've got some oil. Unless you've got some oil. Or, 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 or you've, <laughs> you've got some disaffected parts of Saudi Arabia or mm. Gulf states who like you. This is a good point because uh, right? I think the, 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 the point to follow what I was saying is that actually right. the, the changing nature of the global political economy has enabled some of these uh, 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 subnational elements to yeah. get greater access to markets and, and, and uh, you know, I mean, people are talking now about uh, Islamic State or Daesh or whatever you want to call them. Uh, thriving on the sale of oil or, or even uh, uh, antiques from the places that they are unfortunately destroying uh, at the moment, um, that capacity would have been probably not as uh, it would have been harder to do that in in a pre-internet, uh, pre-easy uh, communication transportation era, mm. the, the one that we have now. Um, but I think that. Um, Another dimension to this, I mean, this is all part of quite a complex picture, so it's sure, hard to sure. uh, make sort of sweeping statements about all of these groups. But 
Um, some of the very interesting research that is happening here at the Asia Research Center by, by some of our students and, and staff has shown that um, a lot of the groups, for example, providing informal security in countries like Indonesia are actually doing that largely under the umbrella of official organs of the state, like especially the, uh, the Indonesian police force. Um, and that uh, it's it's part of of, of uh, they become part of broader expressions of power and conflict within a country like Indonesia, implicated in elite struggles um, that also, as I mentioned before, take uh, take form as struggles within the state. Um, and you know, it's not surprising ent entirely that, uh, for example, the police force will play a role um, in 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 working with groups like this when their entire budget pretty much is uh, their operational budget is based on their capacity to raise revenue in, in local areas so they will team up with uh, groups sometimes taking on an Islamic mantle sometimes something else um, local identity or whatever it may be uh, and, and they give them space in which to operate mm -hmm. but it's a symbiotic relationship um, they give them something back and, and when they overstep the boundary well the police still has state power on its side and it could come down really hard on these groups so this is another manifestation of a broader phenomenon mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. of, of some form of uh, fragmentation both in terms of security provision um, but also of the state itself and, and there is some relationship there which is quite context specific but um, it's, it's definitely not necessarily a sign of again the decline of the state as such and what about on the economic side, the importance of the informal sector, both the, the overtly illegal, almost corporate illegal side, drugs and arms trafficking and people trafficking, and the more street corner, here are some clothes I've made, here are some books I've got. Yeah, look, I think that a lot of that stuff is uh, happening um, without too much elite concern. I think uh, th there are some cases where it's a bit more significant, but I think for the most part, people are just allowed to uh, to do what they do. Uh, in some places, for example, recently in Jakarta, there have been attempts to uh, clean up Jakarta, quote-unquote, uh, to beautify it and, and, and uh, get rid of informal... Um, uh, hawkers and things like that and Marx had a whole pa wonderful yeah. paragraph peddlers hawkers exactly yeah, etc uh, lumpen um, uh, well, there, there, yeah. yeah there's that there, there, there are those words there he also uses hooligans hooligans, in there. Yeah. hooligans is in there and rag pickers well of course Marx despised the uh, the, the, the lumpen proletariat which he saw as a very cynical class and, and not one that was capable of bringing about uh, any serious historical transition um but for institutions like the World Bank and other international organizations, their initial attempt was to um, try and quote-unquote modernize uh, mm. by bringing them into the fold of the formal economy. I think increasingly that, that's not really what they're trying to do. I think what they're trying to do now is um, perhaps uh, uh, try and capture the size of the informal economy and, and try to kind of see how that could play a part in development more broadly. But... Um, Yes, uh, I think um, to the extent that it actually does uh, play a part in undermining state power more broadly, I think it, it, it very rarely does. You know, mm -hmm. I think uh, it mm -hmm. sort of ha happens on the margin, the sort of the survival strategies of individual mm. people, but um, I think it, it very rarely coheres into something that is mobilized enough to really make a mm -hmm. difference. And mm -hmm. when it does, mm -hmm. it tends to be quite sporadic. Uh, spectacular but sporadic. So you, you think about... Nicely um, put. Title of your next book. Yeah. 
Maybe. I'm sure that someone's used that before. Ah, <laughs> titles don't have copyright and hearing to them, remember. Well, that's good. Yeah, so I might use uh, Das Kapital or something like that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I think that, uh, you know, you, you saw some kind of sort of quote-unquote people power movements emerging yeah. in Southeast Asia, in the Philippines and Indonesia that did bring about real change. Some of them were mm. Uh, mm. Uh, of the urban poor or even peasants in, in rare cases. But it very rarely led to real change in the broader structures of, of uh, politics and the economy, it could bring down a government, uh, but then in many cases, uh, older elites were able to regroup in, and, and organize and, and capture power again, but through new institutions of democracy or something like that. And another part of governance that I think of that I'd like to hear your thoughts on would be the third sector or civil society or non-government organizations. Mm -hmm. um, these are romantic creatures for many on the left. Sure. They're romantic creatures for many in aid organizations and transnational organizations and those people get uncomfortable when I ask them about the far right <laughs> which of course is somehow or other never allowed to be part of civil society sure, or sure, NGOs. Yeah. Absolutely. Look, I mean, the, the first point to say, precisely following on from what you were just saying, is that uh, one should never romanticize civil society. Uh, civil society has a whole range of different groups, some of them are progressive, or what we define as progressive, others far from it, right? So that, putting that one to the side, though, I think that... Um, Civil society or, or the uh, um, growth of civil society in many cases is actually a reflection of the decline of, of broader coalitions. Um, for example, like those organized, uh, affiliated with traditional social democratic parties and organized labor. Uh, in many cases, these were not even powerful in the first place for a whole range of reasons, but I think that it is a reflection of, of that fragmentation. Mm. And mm. while they often do advance uh, great outcomes in specific contexts, um, I think that in many cases, because they are so fragmented, uh, and, and in many cases actually dependent on, on money from, from government uh, in order to do what they do, um, their uh, um, effects on on uh, on on kind of broader structures in society tends to be limited uh, and their capacity to come together to affect that kind of change tends to be quite limited as well. Uh, Philippines is probably the best example. One often hears about how Philippines has great thriving civil society and it's true. I mean, it, it does have, um, you know, thousands of groups working across a whole range of issues making some changes that are quite important. I'm, I'm not trying to take away from that. But their capacity to actually change the broader uh, oligarch, sort of landed oligarchy type structure of, of Filipino politics has been minimal. Um, and I think they would probably, on an honest day, would acknowledge that as well. So. I was just in Oslo last week doing some translation for some indigenous leaders from Ecuador, Colombia, and the region in general who are looking to get money from Norwegian NGOs mm. to help them in their struggle against expropriation of their lands for the purposes of extractive minerals development. Yeah. And, of course, the irony is that all the Norwegian NGOs pretty much get their money from the state, mm -hmm. 
and the state's money that gives away comes from the biggest sovereign wealth fund in the world, mm. which comes from North Sea oil and gas. Exactly, yeah. Although you know, so they, they would claim to be a bit more ethical in, in the way that they uh, you know, spend their money, but I haven't scrutinised their uh, portfolio, so I can't say that for sure. Well, it's not to yeah. say that this isn't an ethical use of such money. It's yeah. just to say that if you go far enough back in the life of the commodity sign, mm. no one has clean hands. And no. the irony of using money from mineral extraction in order to try to defy mineral <laughs> extraction is palpable. Yes. And, and yes. this isn't a kind of gotcha story. It's a yeah. story about the inevitable contradictions one confronts yeah. under productivist regimes, mm. whether they're the Marxist one you point out with the denunciation of the informal sector based on its incapacity to be a revolutionary class, or whether it is the position that uh, says in some way uh, you must never connect with anybody who does anything that you consider unethical because, you know, the trains wouldn't run on time yeah, if you look, were to uh, take that position. Uh, an interesting argument that's been made by some of my colleagues uh, at the Asia Research Centre, especially uh, Jane Hutchison, Dr. Jane Hutchison, uh, but also with that Professor Caroline Hughes who's currently back in the UK, uh, was an attempt to try and implement, um, you know, uh, make uh, an analysis of political economy relevant to people trying to make development interventions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, a concept that they came up with is this idea of tactical alliances. And what they're arguing is that donors, development organizations, whether NGOs or, or, mm -hmm. or more mainstream organizations, mm -hmm. bilateral, multilateral, mm -hmm try and find ideological bedfellows. They try to find these organizations in civil society or even in the government that they see as uh, fellow travelers, someone that really believes that drank the Kool-Aid and, and believes uh, the, the big agenda. And they said that that is a mistake because to advance these more progressive agendas in, in a lot of the countries where they attempt to, for example, alleviate poverty or even make smaller interventions, mm -hmm. you know, like providing clean water or whatever it may be, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These, uh, if you like, more liberal forces tend to be uh, very weak, um, mm -hmm. and, and there's pretty good reasons for that. And therefore, uh, a better way of going about it is actually through tactical alliances, uh, mm -hmm. including with people you don't like, um, that are aimed at achieving very specific objectives in very mm -hmm. given settings. Um, so you might align with a warlord um, and, and, and do something, but in a very specific way to get a very specific outcome. And you have to do it with open eyes. Um, so it has to come out of some kind of a broader understanding of how power works in a particular society and where intervention can come in and make very small changes for the better. Donald Rumsfeld shaking hands with Saddam Hussein in 1983? <laughs> Quite possibly. Look, uh, I mean, <laughs> that, that particular uh, relation that America has had with, with uh, various groups in Iraq is fascinating as well because... You start out in 2003 uh, when the, um, uh, you know, the sort of aftermath of the invasion with complete debathification of the Iraqi state and uh, very kind of purist ideas about what was about to happen and what the outcomes are going to be, uh, some kind of liberal democracy um, on, the, on, on the Euphrates there. In 2006 already, um, and especially in 2007, already alliances are being formed with local strongmen through the surge and, and the turn to counterinsurgency with the American uh, forces basically just saying just just do whatever it takes just to stop the violence we don't even care who it is we don't care what they do uh, we'll give you guns we'll find you we'll fund your fighters 
just establish order in your immediate area. So that transition is quite stark. It took only about three years. Well, they, unfortunately, like so much of the United States and Britain, are stuck in the idea that they did one good thing once, mm. which was between 1939 and 45. although they did some, committed some horrendous war crimes in that time sure. in, yeah. in Germany, in Japan, and everywhere they went. And this allows them, A, to use that as an ethical order for the rest of time, and B, to take that as a model of what to do. So debathification was denazification, and look how well that turned out. So it'll all be fine. Completely crazy. Well, the interesting thing is actually that that's not what they did in Japan, which is often used as, as, a, as a second example uh, for successful, if you like, international... American, American like to use the term nation building, but I think state building is probably a little bit more accurate. So Japan is the other case. Well, in Japan, actually, uh, their footprint was a lot smaller. Um, and even in Germany, um, obviously, the leadership itself was replaced, but uh, it, the, the root and branch uh, um, debathification happened in Iraq, as I understand, did not happen, um, especially not in Japan. Um, and, and also, the context of uh, Iraq in 2003 was very different to, to different. that of uh, no, Japan I and mean, Iraq. With, I mean, it's a, with Japan, Japan and Germany, and Germany I mean. they had big, competent, national, multinational corporations that they wanted to work with to keep the left out and to restore order and to generate economic development. Well, the Cold War context, I think, is absolutely, absolutely. crucial. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is a point that's often neglected. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Mm. Well... What I wanted to do, we've only got a couple of minutes left, is if you wouldn't mind doing a sort of boring bibliographic thing, if you could just give folks a hint of how they can come about some of your work. You mentioned the recent book. If you could uh, just tell us where that is and any other stuff that folks would find, especially if any of it's free. Because oh. there are listeners uh, in many parts of the world, yep. many of whom do not have access to EduRome <laughs> and yes, its libraries. Sure. Look, um, my, my work... Pretty much entire in its entirety is available through my academia.edu webpage. Oh, great! Um, okay, which is I think a great resource for anyone trying to keep up with what's happening um, in in their area of interest. Uh, so all those who are interested can can go and, and, and look up my journal articles and some of my book chapters there. Uh, in terms of the books that I've published, mm. uh, my latest one, um, which uh, I think I mentioned before, is entitled "Governing Borderless Threats." Um, and that's published by Cambridge University Press. It, was, it came out this year. Unfortunately, um, for those who are interested, they're going to either have to ask their library to purchase a copy or, or get it themselves through any bookseller. Or the, or the informal sector. Or the informal sector. There are guys out there all over the world right yeah. now on a street corner saying, I've got the Cambridge University Press franchise for this cul-de-sac. Absolutely, absolutely. Look, uh, <laughs> I'm sure that uh, it's, it's a booming trade. <laughs> um so uh, that's that book, and my first book is called Regulating Statehood, which was focused on interventions in so-called failed states, state-building interventions. That was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2010, uh, and again, uh, similar kind of thing. Um, that, that one is, is not online, unfortunately, but um, hopefully in a library near you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Shahar. It's been Thank great you. chatting. Really appreciated it. And it. Thank you. I hope that your new job in Queensland and your new life there is pleasurable and exciting and I hope that once you spend a bit of time there we'll find a means of restarting the conversation and you'll return to the pod. Thank you.